My name is Zelda Gebhardt, and I'll be the facilitator tonight. And I just welcome all of you to this session of Table Talk Thursday. It's sponsored by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision, which is also known as CCLVI. And I want you to know all are welcome, no matter if you have full vision, low vision, or no vision. Everybody's welcome here tonight. And I am just really excited and pleased to announce that Michael Byington uh, will be our guest this evening. And among other things, I can't give you a list of everything this guy's done, but among other things, he's, he is a longtime active ACB member and leader. Um, he's currently the president of his state affiliate to the Kansas Association of the Blind and Visually Impaired. Uh, he's the treasurer of Friends in, Friends in Art, and he's a life member of CCLVI. So tonight, we are asking Michael to put on his certified orientation and mobility instructor hat and share with us information about orientation and mobility. It's probably something everybody has heard but we may not know all about it. And I'm looking forward to learning a lot from Michael today. So first off, Michael. I think tonight, perhaps the first thing I should say is that uh, no one probably is more surprised than I am that I ended up uh, as I'm uh, into my first year of semi-retirement now as a certified orientation and mobility specialist. I did not start out thinking that I wanted to be in this field, but life makes some strange turns. And uh, I worked when I got out of college for a while at a center for independent living. In fact, I worked at two different ones. It seems like when you work for agencies like that, that are working with all types of disabilities in the community, people get assigned to do all sorts of things. And when someone who was blind or visually impaired called and was having travel problems, They'd send me out, not because I was particularly experienced as an instructor of O&M or, or knew what I was doing, but because I was the legally blind guy who worked for the center. So they figured I ought to know something about it. And I guess I did because people seemed to think I was pretty good at doing it. My background originally was uh, training with a, a master's degree in communications, emphasis in drama therapy. And I had these images in my mind. Someday I would work for some type of a facility where I would help people make great psychiatric breakthroughs uh, through improvisation and other uh, communications arts. And I got to do a little bit of that in the Independent Living Center too, and uh, eventually uh, left there because I was offered a position uh, working with deafblind and multiply disabled blind people in Kansas. And that was kind of an odd situation, too. The job I got called for someone who was had a master's in orientation and mobility and also a master's in rehabilitation teaching. And for what it paid, they'd had the job open for a year and a half, and no one had applied who had that combination of uh, qualifications. So they finally took me because I was the closest thing they had to it. And I was looking to changed my life a little bit. Uh, so uh, I had the opportunity to get sucked into the field probably before I was really qualified to do that sort of thing. And at that time, 
Uh, we're talking ancient history back in the 1980s and 90s here. Certification really wasn't required in this state to uh, be an O&M specialist. So I ended up doing quite a bit of that work. It was on soft money, however. And uh, so uh, from there, I uh, ended up into a lobbying position where I did virtually none of that type of work for a while. When I wore out my welcome down at the legislature as a lobbyist, uh, why uh, I ended up administering a, a telecommunications program for a couple of years and doing all kinds of things. But what happened was eventually I ended up working at a job which was very fulfilling, but whales were supposed to be. And I decided to go back to school and actually get the piece of paper to do what I'd already been doing in several jobs, which was working as a certified orientation and mobility specialist. About my training is that I think I was a pretty good O&M guy before I took it, but I think I became much better after mm-hmm. I actually did go through the training. So I, so, I, so in other words, you, you saw the need um, there was a need and and you fulfilled that need and and your training just kind of um, validated what you had already been doing, but validated that, that, and improved. Yes, validated and improved. That's great. It's always good to be equipped the job that we've been set that's set before us. I'm gonna just read a brief um O and M statement and I want you to fill in in between the lines because this is pretty general. Orientation mobility refers to training that enables blind and visually impaired individuals to learn to travel safely within their community. Uh, Specialized instruction will allow the student to learn safe techniques for crossing streets, using canes, and accessing public transportation. And that's very brief. But that kind of en- encompasses it, I believe. You tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, that's a very good statement. I think I would add to travel safely and as independently as is possible for the person mm-hmm. given the set of issues that they may be dealing with. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I like that. Where'd you get it? Well, I'm I'm not sure I can even <laughs> stay where I got it. It was somewhere on the internet, you know, and... And it would look a whole lot different for me living in rural North Dakota um, than it would look like for somebody from, say, a, a large city like New York, wouldn't it? I mean, I my needs are way different. I don't know how, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to um, navigate the subway system or those kinds of things. So as a mobility instructor, you really have to be a good listener and you have to uh, assess, you know, we have to give you the right information so that you come up with the right solution. Is that correct or not? Well, I, I think that's correct. I have the good fortune of being in Kansas, which is also predominantly a rural state, but I have worked in Wichita, which is a city of about half a million uh, metropolitan area. And I've also worked on farms teaching people to find their way to the outbuildings on their farm after they experienced a uh, serious vision loss. So orientation and mobility training, uh, where you get uh, what is usually a graduate degree in that training that I went back to school for when I was in my 50s, is supposed to at least give us some credentials in working in 
all of those different settings. So I could work with you in uh, uh, your rural area, Zelda, or I could work with someone who was, uh, well, allegedly in New York, although I have absolutely no desire to try and teach there. But, mm-hmm. uh, but we all have different needs and, and of all different ages. I'm sure you've had um, students that have been, you know, tell us what your youngest student has been. Well, our certification uh, as a comms through the uh, ACVREP is uh, not age specific. So we are supposed okay. to be able to work with people from uh, shortly after birth to the uh, senior years. And I'm pleased to say in uh, the, I guess, about uh, 14, 15 years that I've been certified now, the youngest client that I've worked with was uh, under a year of age. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do work with those developmental issues to try and help people who have uh, low vision and who are infants uh, learn the uses of vision necessary to get the most out of their visual uh, capabilities that they may have. Or we work on stimulating uh, children who have very low vision or are totally blind in learning to respond to sound, move towards sound, things like that. The oldest client that I have worked with was 102. Wow. And uh, she didn't really work with me for very long because she decided that although all that stuff I was teaching was interesting, she didn't want to use a white cane or carry anything that implied that she couldn't see very well because Mm. she didn't want her boss to find out. Yes, she was done (laughs) going part time. Oh, my goodness. What an interesting lady. (laughs) Yeah, that that really is. Okay, tell us about your training. Now, you, you went into this. I, if if I was listening correctly, when you had your master's degree already, so what additional training was necessary for you to become certified? I ask you that because there might be somebody out there in this group that knows of somebody or is somebody who would be interested in fulfilling that need of being a, an OMON M uh, specialist. Absolutely. My first master's degree in communications had theoretically very little to do with orientation and mobility, but the fact that I had an undergraduate degree in anything, plus a master's in something, Mm -hmm. got me into the training. And I will say that at least at Texas Tech, which is the program that I went through, uh, they don't eliminate someone because their undergraduate degree wasn't in social work or rehab or psychology or some field like that. Uh, the people who entered the program with me had their degrees uh, in everything from restaurant management to uh, early childhood to engineering to you name it. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yes, you can go in. And my credential that I got from Texas Tech allowed me to sit for the certification. If I had taken, I think, three or six more hours, uh, I could have actually said I have a second full master's in orientation and mobility. But they advised me not to do that because they said, actually, those classes are things you already know how to do and you don't need them. Get out there and get back to work. So (laughs) you're needed. Get to work, right? Yes. Okay. And and you mentioned you got your degree from Texas Tech, right? Yes. It's one of, I believe, 22 programs in the uh, 
country that can turn out certified orientation mobility stations. You you knew and, where I was you knew where I was headed for that because you know I I just had no clue how many places there were available that you could get training. There are 22 that do the comms. And I do want to mention this because one of the things you had in the promo was that uh, we were going to talk about uh, what the credentials are and how to choose an OM, O&M person, etc. cetera. Uh, there is also a program at Louisiana State, I believe, that is operated by a gentleman who uh, offers an alternate mobility orientation and mobility training program. And they have a different certification body, which is closely associated with the National Federation of the Blind. They call their certification to uh, work in the field NOMC, uh, National Orientation and Mobility uh, Certified, I think. And uh, the, the principal difference, and this is, I think, very relevant to CCLVI, is that the program that the NFB folks get through Louisiana Tech or Louisiana State Tech, I believe, is a very good program in that it immerses people in what they need to know to travel well as uh, people who are blind, even if they're totally sighted. Most of their work is done under blindfold. Okay. Uh, the person actually has more lab training than most of the programs for comms are oriented to. But they don't emphasize the use of residual vision or low vision in travel. Basically, the view uh, is if you don't have vision, which is working to do everything you need to do, then just forget about the vision and learn to do things as a person who is totally blind. And there is value to that theory. Because I would be the last person to suggest that a person who is legally blind is necessarily more talented or capable or anything else than a person who is totally blind. Mm-hmm. There's no correlation there whatsoever. But if you want O&M training that's going to emphasize using visual aids, using telescopic aids, figuring out how to identify what bus is coming visually, some issues like that, a comms is going to provide that type of training and an M- NOMC is generally not going to be oriented to doing that type of work. And so uh, a question that is a perfectly fair question to ask if you're uh, interviewing someone that you might want to take some training from is, Mm -hmm. uh, you say you've got some kind of certification. What is that from? Are you a COMS or are you an NOMC? And uh, if we forget, if we forget the alphabet soup, we could just ask, will you allow me to use what vision I do have? Exactly. Or, or are, are we going to be doing this with a blindfold? Very yeah. well. Now, uh, I, I don't want to suggest that I never put a blindfold on someone or that I didn't have plant training under blindfold. I did. I have walked many places with a blindfold, depending on a white cane, uh, no vision whatsoever. But the use of residual vision is also a uh, very valued part of the program that uh, is also, we also do work under low vision simulators, which uh, I, I didn't have to do a whole lot of that because I carry my own low vision simulation with me all the time. And thank you for mentioning that. Michael, if, if no, you know, um, he just disclosed that he also um, is a person of low vision. So the trainer knows what 
the student is up against because you live with that. And although well, all of all of our walks are different and we all see differently and and don't see differently, um, you do have um, probably a better understanding than maybe somebody who's fully sighted, do you think? Well, I would suggest so, but I've got to backtrack a little bit on that. Uh, ACB has made some historical changes in their views in this field over the years. And this is one reason why there is both the NOMC certification and the COMS. Uh, When they first started developing certification standards for people who are uh, wanting to teach travel to blind folks back in the late 1950s, and that started largely out of the VA, some of the leaders in the field out of the VA, including some who were blind, uh, such as a guy named Russ Williamson, opined very adamantly that a person who was going to teach O&M ought to have just as good a vision as an airline pilot and no less. Oh, wow. And their reasons for feeling that way was because of the monitoring that a person who is teaching O&M has to do to keep Mm -hmm. the person safe while they are learning. And also, Russ, Russ made a statement which was widely publicized, stating that, uh, one of the reasons that blind people or low vision people shouldn't teach O&M is that the student might become a better traveler than the teacher. <laughs> to which I say, great, if somebody can become a better traveler than I am, more power to them. I'm glad that I was able to start them along the way. But uh, right. ACB bought into that view. Okay. And for the first few years that ACB was around, they supported the idea that a person ought to have as good a vision as an airline pilot to be able to teach O&A. And the National Federation of the Blind, on the other hand, was going the other way, saying that the best O&M teachers were usually people who were totally blind and that they certainly ought to be able to qualify to do it. Mm-hmm. What had happened over the last uh, 60 years or so now is that the field has slowly moved in a direction to where as of 1994, so this took about 35 years, as of 1994, it became possible to become certified as a comms if you were able to pass the academic requirements, pass the uh, laboratory requirements, and pass the national orientation and mobility uh, exam. And okay. to do all that, despite being totally blind, you could become certified as an O&M person. But back when I was in college and trying to think about what I wanted to do, it's a good thing I didn't want to become an O&M person, at least as a comms at that time. They would have discouraged you. not have been allowed to do it. That's right. right, right. The, the slowness of the field to move in that way is actually what created the other type of O&M instructor that came out of the... National Federation movement to the NOMC, they didn't want blind people to be discriminated against from that field. But right, right. You know, I I really thank you for for explaining that because I've I've never heard that before, and I knew there was a difference in certification, but um, you know, I really appreciate being able to to know what the differences are. Now, if if somebody had you know vision loss that was uh, a progressive vision loss, and they 
you know, say like retinitis pigmentosa or like I have star guards and I'm, you know, it, it's likely to progress. I do see some value in doing some of the training with total blindfold. Um, but when you receive, when someone receives their training, um, they might have changes in their life that requires them to go back and get some more training, right? Yeah. That's another thing which is a difference in philosophy between the two schools of thought. The NOMC folks would tell you that if you take your training under blindfold in the first place, you should never have to go back for more training if your vision changes. And so you don't have to worry about having to leave your job or change your lifestyle because you've had a vision change because you've already got all the skills that you need. I, I see uh, that. But as, as we get older, on the other hand, say just yeah. the opposite. That yes, yeah. you have the right to uh, have more training. And I have all uh, have said all along, yes, I've had a lot of training under blindfold, but if I lose the rest of my vision, I don't want to depend on the skills that were taught to me under blindfold 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I want the latest techniques that are available, and you bet I want to go back for more training. So, right, right. I'm an and, advocate of going back for training any time in your life that that's what you need to do. Michael, you and I are both of an age where we know, um, you know, we've we've seen people get older, and we're getting older, not not to the feeble stage, but but to the point where, um, you know, to the point where. Even your balance and it get changes, and so might not the changes that we, you know, go through as we get older necessitate different ticks and trips, tricks and tips, you know, to to accomplish uh, safe um, traveling. Well, one of the jobs that uh, I have had since I got my certification uh, back in 2011 as a comms is that. Uh, I worked for a while with a caseload that was largely uh, our older blind caseload here in Kansas. And I would say that about half of the people I worked with were newly older blind and visually impaired people. And I would say the other half or close to it were people who had had some kind of orientation and training uh, before. Mm-hmm. But because of the kinds of changes that you are describing, mm-hmm. they wanted a refresher. They wanted to, or maybe they moved to a new facility or right. a new town, and they needed orientation. And while to, they were at it, they wanted their skills refreshed a little bit. So right, right, because the the community you live in that that would require maybe different different types of skills. Yeah. Okay. Now I promised that that we would talk a little bit about when does a person decide that 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 orientation and mobility is something that they should go for. And and then after that, we want to talk about where they go to get it. So let's let's talk first. At what point do you think um, somebody should seek um, the training? There are several things that a person needs to consider. First of all, if your vision is changing, and because of the visual changes or uh, the results of other parts of your body changing. Uh, that affect the way your vision functions, you may not be doing something that you used to do and that you would still like to be doing. And if there is some place you would like to go more independently, if you'd rather be taking the fixed route bus to work than using paratransit, for example, mm-hmm. and that is your goal, when then you have an obvious reason for consulting 
someone uh, who is an O&M specialist, whether you have had training before or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are not able to do a task either that you have done before when you had more vision or maybe something that you've never done, but okay, now I all of a sudden I've got a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend that lives uh, four blocks away. I want to be able to walk to their house. Uh, you've got a reason for seeking O&M training. Sure. Okay. Now, where does one find an O&M? You know, there's there's not a an O&M trainer under every bush. <laughs> no, there are not. There's no, and and in fact, there is is a real. I I view it as a real widespread shortage of of specialists out there. Uh, it seems like here in North Dakota, mm-hmm. we're always looking for somebody, right. um, and there, you know, most of our specialists spend a, a good portion of their time driving from here to there uh, more time than they spend with their clients and and so where does one you know can you can you contract with somebody yourself um do you do that through an agency and i i, I realize that it's it's done differently in in different areas but um kind of commonly how how do you get your referrals well, now, personally, at this point, I'm semi-retired. I have given mm-hmm. up my regular caseloads. And as president of KABVI, I have an office downtown because our affiliate does maintain a little office uh, in uh, an office building downtown. There are so few services in the state that we do provide some direct services. Mm-hmm. And I work out of that office. And so uh, we're listed in the phone book as a provider. I get calls just directly from people who are losing vision and uh, want to know what's out there, which in this state is uh, very little right now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's the way I get my uh, referrals. However, most of the older blind programs in the country have some access to certified people in orientation and mobility. So if you're over 55, and many of us who are on this call don't think of 55 as old, but the feds have decided that if you're over 55 and you can't see very well, you're older blind. So you need to find out who your older blind representative is in your area, contact them and say, I need O&M. If you are of working age, it really varies from state to state. In many states, it's vocational rehabilitation uh, agencies of the state, but any state that, or any community that has a lighthouse or a site center, an agency that uh, is a private not-for-profit that works with blind people, they probably have at least so, some O&M capabilities on staff. For a good bit of the my working years as a comms working full-time, I worked for an agency out of Wichita called Envision, and they are a very large service provider. They have uh, national industries for the blind affiliations, but they also do a lot of rehab. So look for a private agency that has something to do with blindness. Some of the centers for independent living do employ O&M people in the bigger communities, like in California, in New York, you're going to find an O&M person uh, housed in many centers for independent independent living, or if they don't have them, they know how to get them. Okay. Uh, so ask around. Is that what ask you- around? Yeah. Uh, also, if you are dealing with someone who is still in school, all schools are required 
to have certified orientation and mobility people uh, as part of their related services providing, and that's a magic word, related services providers within spatial ed. So uh, if you're visually impaired and you need to travel a little bit better and you're in school uh, between uh, preschool and high school, you've got it. Uh, You just need to get it in your IEP. Okay, and if it's in their IEP, the school's going to to pay for it, right? That is absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, A lot of the private agencies will pay for it or subsidize the cost of it. I am allowed to contract with people in private practice, and I've done a little bit of uh, work that way. I carry insurance, so I can do that, Mm -hmm. but I really don't do it very often because I'm 68 years old myself right now, and I, I just... Maybe don't want to work that hard anymore. <laughs> there you go. All right. So things do change. Okay. What what should we be expect from an on M instructor? You know, we okay. We found one, and uh, what kind of instructions are they? You know, what are they going to do? First, there's probably an assessment. You sit down and have a talk with them, yes. and and then what happens? Well, there are a number of assessment vehicles that a lot of O and M people use. Uh, I don't. I simply like to sit down and interview the person and find out what their goals are and what training they've had in the past. Right now, I'm working actively with a couple of people, one of whom lost his vision at the age of 33. He's now 35. He had had almost no training with the white cane, so we had to start, and he had some learning disabilities as well, so we had to start with the basics of uh, things like your white cane really needs to cross your body once per step, or it's not going to show you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. Your arc needs to be a little bit wider than your body, about two inches wider on each side. No, this cane that comes up to your waist doesn't work. You need enough reach that you know what's going on. We're going to start somewhere between your sternum and your nose with uh, cane length and decide what's going to work within that area. And we're starting at those very basic levels. And then we begin to work with mapping concepts, concepts of uh, can you under, can you visualize or can you understand if you've never had vision what a square block feels like, et cetera? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, those things are all done in conversation. As I said, many O&M people do have a specific assessment device that they like that puts all that in a certain order. I don't choose to work that way, but many do. Uh, and it's very important that we listen to what the person's goals are. Uh, I I often have people ask how how much can you see, and I say just enough to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. this, this, uh, there's also things that you've got to look at in terms of family uh, situations. The gentleman that I was just referring to lives with a large family, mm-hmm. and uh, I, for many times, would meet him at his home, and we would walk to the bus stop, which is a block and a half from his home together. We'd been doing that for quite some time. I said, okay, now I'm going to start riding the bus to your place, but I'm not going to get off the bus. I want to see you at the bus stop. And if you don't get on the bus, I'm going to stay on the bus and go back to my office and we'll try it another day. But if we schedule a lesson, I expect you to be out to the bus stop. And so he started doing that, but he'd always have a family member with him. And I said, you know, I don't quite know why you're asking me for orientation and mobility 
because <laughs> you don't really seem to want to go anywhere by yourself. Independently, independently. Yeah. Exactly. And he said, well, my family told me it's not a good idea. <laughs> I said, well, when you decide whether your family's right or not, call me again. But we cut off lessons for several weeks until he decided, nope. I really do want to be more independent. Sometimes there it's necessary to take breaks like that. On the other hand, I'm working mm-hmm. with a lady in her 50s right now who's lost most of her vision. She still has a very, as you said, just enough vision to get her into trouble sometimes. Mm-hmm. And she was, she's ready to take on the world. By golly, she wants to continue to do many things that she's done before and is uh, working a lot more actively with me, even though she was blinded due to brain surgery and has some processing problems that we've had mm-hmm. to work through with getting that mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's something. Um, I think. Hi. Um, yeah. So when I learned O&M in the seventies, most of the uh, training was on sidewalks. Stores were right there. Their little storefronts were right on the sidewalks. Nowadays we have most stores are behind a giant parking lot. People used to park behind the store in the seventies. And it seems like my whole life is crossing these enormous parking lots or walking through a business park trying to find a building. And I'm hardly ever using a real sidewalk anymore. What are your thoughts on how to navigate these kinds of situations, especially since most of my O&M training focused on environments I hardly ever see anymore? Lots are tough, but you're right. To get to many of the big box stores, certainly, or the supermarkets, you've got to cross them. And uh, there are a number of techniques that us O&M types teach to make it safer to do it. However, I, I am using the word safer and not the word absolutely safe, because I'm going to tell you parking lots are some of the most dangerous areas to get across. One of the things that we teach is not to move out through the middle of the lanes of, of parking, because Drivers who are wanting to park are looking off to the side, looking for a place that they can stick their cars in. And they're going to miss someone uh, visually quite often that's in plain sight walking down the center of the lot. Instead, we suggest that you try to, where there's a whole bunch of cars parked, uh, make contact, uh, contact with your cane, with the back of the vehicle, and that you be very obvious about it, uh, that... Uh, You have a lot of movement uh, for people who don't use canes. And yes, we do work with some low vision people who use other forms of travel. I still like the idea of carrying a uh, visibility cane. So uh, drivers that do notice it might know you're blind. What I try to do in addition is help the person find the very edges of the parking lot. They're going down the row of cars that is... Uh, at the edge of the parking lot, because there's usually less traffic in that area. And you've got something else to orient to. Quite often, there are not a lot of cars along there, and you can shoreline the edge of the parking lot, moving toward the building. And uh, there are some parking lots, Walmart's doing a lot of these, where they actually do create a raised walkway through the parking lot that does give you some protected travel ability because let's face it, sighted people don't always look where they're going either. And mm-hmm. they've got to get through that parking lot if they park out a long way away also. Mm-hmm. And those raised walkways through are wonderful things, but you do need 
someone, and it doesn't take a certified orientation and mobility specialist. You need someone to orient you and say, now, look, if you move and find this landmark halfway along this block, that is your indicator to step up onto that raised walk, and that'll take you all the way into the store. Uh, And a lot of it is simply knowing it's there, because if you don't have the vision to see that the walk is over there, then you're going to be out there playing in the traffic when you don't need to. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question well, because parking lots are tough, but uh, those are some of the things that I work with. Thank you, Deborah, for your question. That ver- um, you know, those walkways you you were alluding to, Michael, um, that might serve as another safety measure. Um, it might slow people down um, from speeding clear across the parkway when there's very few cars that are parked there. Um, so yes, I, I, I see that that might be a, an advantage there too. To get off the, um, you know, let you answer. When you're talking about going along the edge of the parking lot are you talking about going at the extreme let's say right edge or left edge where the parking lot ends or are you talking about walking behind the first row of cars where the tree lights are second in a lot of cities they're setting up transportation bus lines where you have to cross the traffic lanes to get up on a raised platform where you board the bus that's getting really fascinating. And since resources are so limited, and if a person thinks they're going to have changing vision twice in a lifetime, and working with a SIL, should you go for half of the mobility so that you don't uh, blow your entitlement, you can't get it later? Parking lots. There's no way I can answer that question very thoroughly because every parking lot is different. But what I look for is uh, if you view the parking lot as a rectangle in front of a rectangular store, a large open rectangle, uh, I look for going down the side of the parking lot where hopefully there aren't many cars parked or if there are, They are right up against the edge of the parking lot. Now, yes, you may still have to go behind the cars in those kind of situations, but the idea is to give you uh, a few more landmarks and more orientation points along the way and to keep you out of the thickest traffic. You're basically uh, moving around uh, the, the problem areas. And yes, you have to walk a little further, which doesn't work for a lot of people as they're getting older. Uh, this is one of the good arguments for paratransit, uh, getting you up closer to the doorway. But uh, uh, the, the the second, let me see if I can get all of your... The buses, the cities that are creating oh, the buses, traffic yes. line where you have to cross two or three lanes of traffic, then you step up yeah. onto a race platform, then the the paratransit Pardon me, the bus comes down and you board it like a subway. Right. Okay, I I understand what you're talking about. And uh, don't don't mute yet because I may ask you for clarification on your third question as well. That's the kind of situation where if you've got to catch a bus at that bus stop and you're not comfortable with it and you say, I don't want to do this, one of the things that comms can do in uh, most venues is certify who is eligible for paratransit and who's not. You don't have to to go to your uh, 
general practitioner doctor to do that who actually doesn't probably know the answer from Adam anyway, I can do that. And I encourage people to choose places where you simply say, I will not travel. Now, if you're a a person that says, by God, I will go where I want to go, then I'm going to teach you some techniques like uh, emphasizing cane flagging, trying to stop traffic. I'm going to do everything I can to give you the utmost safety, or I'm going to look for another bus stop, maybe half a block down or something like that for you. There, There's all kinds of problem solving that needs to take place, but one of the things that got me interested in this field before I ever went back to school and got the letters after my name is I worked for a year as the Section 504 coordinator and uh, um, running the Office of Disability Concerns for the city of Wichita way back before the ADA when it was only 504. But in that capacity, I started really looking at traffic and bus design. And no, I don't have the credentials of an urban planner or a traffic engineer, I'd like to think that I can talk the language with those folks. And I think that advocating to keep those kind of things from ever being put in in the first place, because they're not safe for sighted people either. It's limited resources. So you're going to apply to a cell for cane travel. And, you know, you're looking at over, okay, I'm going to, do you go for the full thing or the full, or do you, sorry about this phone, or do you just your ability for later? So much from state to state that you're giving me a tough one there. But what I would say is that you uh, establish your O&M by goals. And you say to the agency, whether it's a state VR agency or a private agency that is employing the O&M person, or say to the person if you're contracting privately, these are the things that I want to contract up front. I want to achieve this and this and this. Then after that's done, you and the person can consult with each other on how much further you want to go. And, uh, you know, one of my frustrations that I certainly have had working for such an agency is maybe I've been working with somebody for a year and the progress is slow, but I think we're making progress. And the boss says, well, I think the year's enough. I think you have brought that person about as far as you're going to be able to bring them. Well, that's actually something that I am more expert at knowing than they are. But when they've got boss after their title, sometimes things like that happen. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's not a perfect world. So uh, the, the point that I would make is to be very specific with your goals and what you're wanting to get out of it. So you can argue, no, you're in this business of helping me meet my goals. And this goal is not met yet. I've taken several sessions of O&M training over the years, and I get and I understand the mechanics of cane traveling and this and that. But I wonder if you could maybe give us a few little hints and and ideas on on the orientation side of it. You know how how to get to where you're going. I I could walk down a sidewalk without killing myself and walk across the street, but the orientation part of it is what's uh, kind of got me stifled, and it's why I don't go anywhere unless I'm with someone else. So can you speak to that a little bit? I will try to. Uh, okay. Within the training that I had to take to get the right to sit for the exam, we do a lot of 
work with tactile mapping, different helping people with concepts. There are people now who find that they don't really have to be as oriented as they used to be because they're using any of a number of uh, GPS-based orientation aids out there. The thing I would emphasize about all of those kinds of aids is if you're not naturally a well-oriented person and you find your orientation getting lost from time to time, those good cane skills, Tom, are what can make GPS or carrying a uh, uh, tactile map or a turn-by-turn route primer that is like on a Victor Reader stream or on a uh, refreshable Braille device. Any of those things can work for you because you're using your cane well. Uh, Quite frankly, the biggest problem that I see more than, than loss of orientation is people, after they've not traveled for a few years, all of a sudden, they're not arcing their cane back and forth. It's being bounced up and down, or they're arcing the cane once every three or four steps. And at that level, there's too many things that you're going to miss, and you're going to end up uh, putting yourself uh, in danger. Or a person who uh, perhaps is low vision and has been using very effectively a visual aid as their primary travel device, it's not adequate anymore. They're missing steps. They're falling off curbs and so on. Uh, it's knowing when to switch to using the right aid, which uh, for you, Tom, is obviously not a problem. You're asking about orientation, but you gave me a chance to get that in. I can give you examples of things that might work, but I'm very careful not to say, okay, this is what's going to work for you. (laughs) I understand. Okay. I'm probably the least techie guy on the call tonight. So all these apps that everyone talks about, I'm not into apps yet, okay? So, <laughs> and I know there's some good ones out there. I've heard people talking about them. So. Well, I understand uh, your your reluctance with apps. Uh, I already said I'm 68 years old, and although I started using an Apple IIe computer back in 1982, I always feel like I'm behind where I need to be in terms of my capabilities. People like Zelda and uh, Kathy who can... Uh, do all this stuff with ACB radio and so on, just absolutely uh, astound me. There are some standalone mobility devices. You can pick up a uh, Trekker Breeze for next to nothing now because it's not computer-based. It's a standalone O&M device. There's another little one called the Captain. Uh, I had both. I used to teach both. I tried an experiment one time. I was going to walk about a mile route from where our affiliate office used to be to my home. And I happened to know that the best sidewalks were either on 6th or 8th Street. And I was going to use one of those. But my two orientation devices wanted to take me up 7th Street that has terrible sidewalks. That would trip almost anyone. So... I think you, you have to know when to listen to your own, to your uh, GPS devices, and you have to know when to say, okay, thank you very much, but we're not going to do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. So my question, and this has kind of been, I, I know this is probably going to be a controversial one. The question I have is, can you comment about what would the what the correct length of a cane would be? Because I know 
you know, each of the two certifying organizations has different views on that. And it's kind Let's of get confusing. Michael's opinion. I established parameters uh, for, for people. Healthy. I don't like to put a person in a, with a cane that's less than stern, sternum length because generally their reaction time just isn't going to be good enough. And if somebody's wanting to use a cane, which is uh, about a foot taller than they are, I might say we'll try a little bit shorter of a cane. But I really believe that uh, fitting yourself with a cane lengthwise past the very general parameters is uh, a personal decision. I'm not going to tell you whether your bra ought to latch in the front or the back. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what size of cane to use either. Okay. Taught to use a metal cane tip. But when I discovered roller tips as an adult, I kind of fell in love with them. Can you comment on why you might use or not use a roller tip? Thank you. I'm glad that you asked the question because cane tips are just as much of a selection as cane length. Uh, And different people who have different preferences are going to use different uh, cane tips. But here's some some overall parameters. If you are someone who is really good with echolocation, you can hear the echo of that tap. You are getting a lot of information out of uh, out of that tap. I certainly would not tell you that you ought to switch to a roller tip because you're doing fine with what you've got. However, recent research has shown that the more time your cane is in contact with the ground, the more information it's going to give you. That doesn't seem like rocket science, but it took a bunch of 20-year researchers to figure it out. (laughs) I like roller tips. I suggest to people that we start out with those. But if it's someone who obviously benefits from very good hearing for use of echolocation, then we may also try tapping the cane. And even within the roller tip, uh, there are people who do better with the roller ball, and there are people who who do better with the roller marshmallow. So I, again believe that you should have a cafeteria of cane tips try what you will try and use what you can use best in your opinion there you go well thank you so much michael i think we are out of time and and i'm sorry if you know if you had a question and you didn't get it answered we don't have any more raised hands so i believe you did a great job michael uh, we got a lot of information tonight. And I really think that um, there is much more to this than than what we covered, and maybe we'll have to have a a, a second second one in the series or something at some point in time. But thanks again to to Michael for being our guest and to, for sharing his experience from the perspective of of a um, certified O and M specialist. Specialist, yes. I wanted to say trainer, but I knew that wasn't quite right, so I paused. But uh, (laughs) uh, I will just end by saying that my email is long but pretty easy. It's my last name and C O M S after it at cox c o x hyphen internet dot com. So if anyone has a question, feel free to email me. Well, thank you for for being open and and allowing us to do that. And I thank you tonight's. session was sponsored by CCLVI, um, the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, and we have calls Monday evening at 8, Thursday evening at 8, and Friday morning at 11 each week. So we also have um, a session on the third Tuesday of each month, and, and that has been going on way before COVID was a thing. 
Um, that was our Let's Talk Low Vision, and that's the second Tuesday, and that is at 8.30 Eastern. All times are Eastern. And I want to thank you all for spending your your evening with us. It was great having you, and I hope you learned something from tonight. I did. And thanks again, Michael and, and Kathy. Um, good, good night to everyone. Thank you all. Thank you. All right.